0: Prestige Heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, coming from hailing Los Angeles and I'm here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison and Derek is going to bring us the news and not only is he going to bring us the news but we're going to start with the new 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 new
1: new. So Derek, what's going on in the new Cold War? Uh well, it's not happening here because it's uh sunny and 75 degrees here in uh, northern virginia so uh, sorry about the hail but uh <laughs> nice We're let's have, do 20 minutes having having on nice weather here <laughs> yeah so there's a few things uh, the uh, big tension this week has been over uh, started on sunday actually when anthony blinken the secretary of the, S- the secretary of state did all of the uh, sunday network sunday morning news shows uh, uh, really uh, must have been thrilling because who, who wouldn't want to do all those shows? Uh, to, to say that, uh, the U.S. government has information. Now he has, didn't say what that information was, suggesting that China is on the verge of arming Russia, basically sending weapons to the Russian military to support the war in Ukraine. Uh, now Biden met over the weekend with, uh, the senior Chinese diplomat Wang Yi. Uh, at the Munich Security Conference, apparently uh, stressed to him that this would not be looked upon favorably by the United States if China were to take this step. Uh, it's, of course, only the United States that's allowed to flood Ukraine with weapons. It's I, I don't know what this evidence is. Uh, the Chinese government has denied it uh, very snappily, uh, came back on Monday. The foreign ministry noted uh, that it's the U.S. that's dumping weapons into Ukraine and is therefore not qualified, uh, this is their quote, is not qualified to issue any orders to China. The Secretary General of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg, uh, also said this week, a few days after Blinken, that NATO has apparently seen signs that China might arm Russia. Again, I don't know what these signs are. That's not to say they don't exist, just uh, it's not really clear what these guys are looking at. Uh, Xi Jinping is supposed to give uh, a speech on Friday uh, in which which will mark the the first anniversary of the uh, the war, the start of the war, in which he's uh, supposedly going to outline uh, a peace initiative. Uh, now China has talked about, Arranging peace talks and you know playing a role in trying to broker a settlement to this conflict for uh, pretty much a full year now and has not really uh, managed to to get any traction. So I don't I don't know how intensive this is going to be or how successful it's going to be. But it's a little weird uh, that they would plan they would be planning to do this uh, at the same time that they're also planning to arm the Russians. These seem to be con- kind of cross purpose uh, policies. Uh, I will also say that uh, on Thursday, the uh, deputy UN ambassador for China, Dai Dai Bing, uh, spoke to the UN General Assembly uh, and said, uh, among other things, uh, that uh, uh, the lesson of the first year of the Ukraine war uh, is, quote, that sending weapons will not bring peace. Uh, So again, it would be a little weird for them to start sending weapons now. It's not clear to me. Uh, why they would do that, which, again, doesn't mean they're not planning to do that. I'm just not uh, entirely sure what's going on here. Now, Wang Yi did visit Moscow uh, on uh, uh, Wednesday. He spoke with Vladimir Putin, Sergei Lavrov, the, you know, sort of the uh, the top dogs in Moscow. Uh, they they seem to have talked mostly about economic issues. They didn't really get into... Uh, talking about the war or about any potential Chinese military support. Uh, it was a demonstration, I suppose, of, uh, the partnership or the, uh, relationship between those two countries. Uh, but that relationship, they've, they've demonstrated this, you know, over the last several months a number of times. And China has always, uh, kept the war relatively at arm's length. Uh, so, you know, I'm not, uh, not entirely sure what to make of all these allegations. Uh, there's an interesting picture, actually, of uh, if you uh, Google it, you can probably find it, of uh, Wang Yi and Putin shaking hands. And it's interesting because Wang is in the much more dominant, if you're like one of these body language people, Wang is in the much more dominant position. He's pulled Putin's hand toward him. He's like, uh, you know, clearly uh, body language wise, looks. So like the he's shaking guy his here. hand like you shake my hand, basically. Yeah, exactly. pure, utter, exactly. Dominance. Pure, pure alpha dominance. Uh, it's it's uh, impressive to see. Uh, so as a as a fellow alpha, I, I salute him. The other thing of note, I guess, this week on the new Cold War front has to do with the Philippines. The Philippine government is uh, reportedly in talks with both Australia and the U.S about organizing joint naval patrols in the South China Sea. Uh the South China Sea is becoming rapidly uh, not just a flashpoint for Philippine Chinese relations, uh, relations uh, but also the uh, a lever by which uh, the Philippines seems to be drifting much more closely back into the US orbit uh, and away from China of uh, people who followed uh the former president uh, of the Philippines, Rodrigo Duterte, and his administration know that he embraced a fairly, uh, conciliatory, not, not, you know, entirely so, but more friendly approach toward China, uh, than past Philippine presidents. And now with, uh, Ferdinand Marcos Jr. in office, uh, he seems to be embracing a much more U.S. oriented foreign policy. And it has to do with overlapping claims about uh, control over island chains in the South China Sea uh, control of maritime shipping lanes. Uh, so, uh, you know, another part of this U.S. kind of effort to improve its position in the Pacific, uh, I think has to, has to include, uh, what is a, a newly kind of improving relationship, uh, under Marcos uh, with the Philippines. Thank you, Derek. A lot
0: of stuff going on there. We'll keep our eyes on it. Uh, why don't we move over to what happened on the Pakistan-Afghanistan border?
1: Yes. So this happened Sunday night. Apparently, the uh, Afghan government closed the Torcom border crossing, which is the main commercial conduit uh, and uh, probably I would say main conduit for people as well, uh, between Afghanistan and Pakistan. Monday morning, there were reports of gunfire between Pakistani and Afghan border guards. One Pakistani uh, border guard was apparently uh, wounded in that exchange of fire. This was followed uh, on Wednesday by a trip to Kabul uh, by the Pakistani Defense Minister, Khoja Asif, uh, and also the head of the Inner Services Intelligence Agency, Pakistan's uh, you know, uh, main intelligence service, Nadim Anjum. Uh, they met with the Deputy Prime Minister for Economic Affairs, uh, Abdul Ghani Baradar, uh, and whatever they talked about, they seem to have agreed uh, to reopen the border crossing. So uh, as of uh, I believe Thursday uh both countries had agreed to reopen that crossing. There were thousands of trucks, apparently just like stuck in line uh waiting to cross on either side so uh, this should be uh good for the 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 people trying to do some commerce uh at least uh The main issue continues to be the, the Afghan government's uh either support for or inability to do anything about the Pakistani Taliban. Uh, kind of using Afghan territory as a base from which to launch attacks into Pakistan, the Pakistani government, uh, which has historically had good relationships, uh, good relations with the Afghan Taliban. Uh, since the Taliban took power again after the U S uh, withdrew in 2021, uh, that relationship has gotten really, uh, has really soured, uh, mostly over this issue of Pakistani militants, uh, basing themselves in Afghanistan and the, uh, the Afghan Taliban not really doing anything about it. Uh, again, whether they're, you know, just looking the other way because they have a, an ideological affinity with the Pakistani Taliban or they really just can't do anything uh, about it is unclear. Um, uh, so that's the, that's still the main sticking point, um, but uh, I guess they have agreed to at least reopen the border. The 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 other issue has been Pakistan fencing off parts of the border, uh, which it it's been doing to try and minimize the the attacks from militants. But uh, that's a sore point for the Afghan government, and not just this Afghan government. No Afghan government has ever recognized that border is legitimate, so it's uh, it that's a that's a kind of red line for them uh, as well. But uh, so the underlying issues are still there. But at least this border crossing thing has been cleared up. Thanks, Derek.
0: Uh, let's talk about North Korea's ICBM test. And yes. should I be worried as
1: being a West Coaster best coaster? Uh, I don't think yet because uh, they, they tested a, a Hwasong-15 ICBM Hold on, on hold on. I'm
0: announcing now for everyone, if I die in a North Korea nuclear attack, Derek cannot yeah, I, continue the podcast okay. with All right, anyone. He that, cannot podcast on record. ever yeah. again.
1: The, so they tested a Hwasong-15, which can hit the continental United States. Uh, they, they didn't test it in the, you know, kind of risky way of firing it off in a normal kind of more horizontal trajectory. They fire, when they do these tests, they fire uh, straight up and straight back down to kind of try to test the range of the missiles and everything. Uh, now, the North Koreans have tested the Hwasong-15 before. There are indications that the one they fired on Saturday has some upgrades uh, from past models. So there was some, uh, they probably did learn some uh, things from that test. Nevertheless, it, they mostly did it uh, after having made a threat of, you know, catastrophic uh, retaliation. Uh, the previous day, I think, it was on Friday if the United States and South Korea uh, continue doing joint military exercise with one another, which is a you know, sore spot for the North Koreans. Uh, the U.S. and South Koreans did conduct in the uh, immediately after, almost immediately after the ICBM test, they did conduct a joint exercise. Uh, this was on Sunday, uh, the U.S. also, at the same time, conducted a joint uh, bomber exercise with the Japanese Self-Defense Force, which is really a military, but they, they have to call it something else. Uh, that prompted North Korea to fire off a couple of short-range weapons, either rockets or short-range ballistic missiles, on Monday morning. Uh, they also referred in their statement about that launch... They refer to the Pacific Ocean as a firing range, which doesn't sound great. Uh, so, uh, it, it'll be exciting to see what happens next, I suppose. Uh, they could, there, there've been North Korea watchers have been predicting another nuclear test for a couple of years. It seems like now months, at least. Uh, and it still hasn't happened. So that could be on the cards. They could also, uh, try testing an ICBM on a, typical ICBM trajectory, which would be uh, fairly provocative because it would probably have to overfly some places like, uh, I don't know, Guam or, you know, Japan or, you know, uh, Japan or, or, you know uh, who knows really, but uh, it would probably be a relatively provocative thing. But uh, that's also potentially a card that they could play if they want uh, to just kind of thumb their nose at the U.S.
0: Thanks, Derek. Um, Why don't we talk about what's going on in Russia with Putin and the Wagner Group and uh, all of those things?
1: Yeah, so there's a couple of things here. One is uh, on Tuesday, Putin, Vladimir Putin delivered his State of the Nation address. He had delayed it uh, somewhat to more closely coincide with the first anniversary of the Ukraine war. Uh, Most of the speech was devoted to kind of defending the war and, uh, you know, lambasting the West. Apparently, we're all pedophiles now. I didn't realize this, but uh, it's the norm in Western society, uh, I hear. There was one substantive thing that emerged from the speech, which is Putin announced that he's uh, suspending Russia's participation in New START, which is, of course, the only currently active nuclear arms limitation treaty. Uh, He's referring to the, the inspection elements of the treaty, which gives the U.S. the right to inspect uh, Russian nuclear facilities gives the Russians the right to inspect nucle- uh, U.S. nuclear facilities. Uh, the, the Russian foreign ministry came out after the speech and was uh, very insistent that Russia would still abide by other elements of the treaty, including uh, its caps on the number of nuclear warheads, its requirements to share information regarding ICBM testing. Uh, so it's re- this is really about the inspection elements, which the Russians have been complaining about for a while now. They say that uh, Western sanctions and travel bans have made it impossible for the Russians to exercise their inspection rights, but the U.S., you know, could still exercise its inspection rights, which, uh, makes it unfair. Uh, I'm sure this is also intended as a sort of a way to try and raise the stakes, uh, for the U.S. and its support for Ukraine. But, um, the U.S. expressed some disappointment, uh, in the announcement, but uh, there's no indication that they're uh, considering any, uh, you, know, you know, any adjustment uh, to their Ukraine policy as a result. The other thing of note is there's been a week-long kind of escalating feud. This has gone on longer than a week, but this week really kind of hit uh, the, uh, the shit hit the proverbial fan, as it were, uh, between the Wagner Group boss, Yevgeny Prigozhin, and elements of the Russian military or elements within the Russian defense ministry. Prigozhin has been, uh, accusing all week, uh, the Russian military of refusing to provide his fighters in Ukraine with ammunition and, and basically saying, you know, any Wagner fighters who are dying uh, in Ukraine for lack of ammunition, it's, it's the fault of the Russian military. Now, there's been, uh, a lot of analysis in Western media, and I don't know how much credence to give that, uh, about potential possible tensions uh, in that relationship because Wagner has been kind of taking point in the only really successful front for the Russians, uh, of late, which has been around Bakhmut. Uh, and so, you know, there's some feeling that maybe, uh, higher ups in the Russian defense ministry are a little, uh, irked at Prigozhin taking, you know, a higher profile and having this success while they're, uh, they're not doing so well. Uh, so on Monday, he, you know, he issued an audio statement, uh, accusing, uh, the Russian defense ministry of basically forcing him to beg for ammunition. Uh, on Tuesday, he issued another audio statement which uh, accused the defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, uh, and Valery Garasimov, the, the chief of the Russian general staff, of trying to destroy Wagner uh, by, by per, per, you know, uh, kind of depriving it of ammunition. Uh, then on Wednesday, he, he published photos of dead Wagner group fighters uh, to kind of raise the stakes still further. Now on Thursday, he has apparently uh, announced that he's getting his ammunition. <laughs> he doesn't, he's not, uh, there's nothing going on anymore, nothing to see here. So I don't know what to make of that if he's been given uh, a talking to by somebody uh, or if he really has uh, kind of won the day here and, and gotten what he was looking to get out of the defense ministry. But uh, that's the latest development and I haven't really had time to digest uh, much of the reporting other than headlines about that because it's uh, it just came out a little bit before uh, we recorded this. But apparently... Uh, for now, at least this, this tension has been tamped out. That doesn't mean, uh, it's not going to resurface. Again, this has been something that seems to have been going on for a few weeks now and will probably continue. Jake, uh, you hear that Derek's
0: not working hard enough, so be sure to
1: dock some of his pay, uh, yes, next time. Absolutely. Uh,
0: so Derek, let's talk a little bit about Biden's visit to Ukraine.
1: Yes. Uh, Biden made a surprise visit to Ukraine, uh, on Monday uh he was planning he had on his schedule a visit to Poland uh on Tuesday where he was going to give a big speech about the war uh that all went went off as planned of course but uh, he he did make this surprise visit to Kiev on Monday met with Volodymyr Zelensky kind of walked around uh the city for photo ops uh it was the first visit by uh, Biden to Ukraine since the start of the war, and I, I don't even know. I mean, it's the first visit by any U.S. president to a war zone that wasn't uh caused. It wasn't caused by the U.S. military or under the control of the U.S. military. In I don't even know how long it's been quite a while. Obviously, um, at, at the very least, he's the first president, first U.S. president in the 21st century to to visit such a war zone. Um, he didn't make any huge announcements. He did announce another $500 million in military aid, but this mostly seems to be ammunition, uh, and armor materiel. Uh, He didn't make any big dramatic announcements about say, providing Ukraine with F-16s. Um, and he didn't do so on Tuesday either in his speech in, in Poland, which was mostly seems to have been cheerleading, uh, for the Ukrainians and for the Western, uh, effort to support them. Uh, so still nothing on that front. Although, uh, you know, I suspect and have suspected for a while that that's only a matter of time uh, before that uh, that dam breaks. Thank you, Derek. Let's move on now to Israel-Palestine
0: because quite a bit has happened in the last week.
1: Yes. So on Monday, uh, I guess we could do this chronologically. On Monday, the U.N. Security Council adopted a statement. It's not a resolution Uh, resolutions are quote unquote binding, uh, nothing the UN security council or any other part of the UN does is actually binding in any sense that it grammatically would make sense. Uh, but by UN standards, resolutions are binding. Uh, this was a statement, which is not binding. It, uh, said it it basically condemned Israeli settlement activity in East Jerusalem and the West Bank. Uh, said it dangerously imperils the viability of the two-state solution, uh, which we're still flogging, I guess, based on the 1967 lines. Uh, it expressed concern and dismay with the Israeli government's decision earlier this month to retroactively legalize nine settler outposts in the West Bank. Uh, the reason that this was done as a statement and not a resolution is because the U.S., despite agreeing with all of this in a uh, technical rhetorical sense, would have vetoed a resolution. Uh, So it was redrafted as a statement. Uh, The Israeli government reacted angrily, but there's really nothing uh, else to it. Now, this is, this is relevant to a point I'll make uh, in a moment. But what happened uh, next uh, was uh, we can fast forward, I guess, to Wednesday. Israeli forces killed at least 11 Palestinians. Uh, and wounded uh, over 80 others, uh, possibly as many as 100 or even more than that, uh, during an arrest raid in Nablus. Uh, they apparently went in uh, to attack a home with the, the, with two Palestinian Islamic Jihad commanders inside. Uh, that drew a crowd. Uh, Israeli officials say, of course, uh, per the usual script, that their uh, forces came under attack while they were doing this. Uh, they themselves were not initiating any attack despite the fact that they were raiding this uh, this house. Uh, they reacted in self-defense, purely self-defense. Uh, there were no casualties on the Israeli side. At least four of the Palestinians who were killed were civilians. The two uh, Islamic Jihad commanders were both killed along with uh, at least one Hamas uh, fighter. Uh, this is the uh, deadliest Israeli operation in the West Bank since the second intifada, which uh, took place in the early 2000s uh, at the rate this israeli government is going it probably will be surpassed fairly fairly quickly uh it makes for at least 62 i think or 63 at this point palestinians who've been killed by israeli israeli forces so far in 2023 uh and it was large enough the incident was was significant enough that it drew a response from gaza from palestinian islamic jihad which fired um i think six rockets Uh, out of Gaza early Thursday morning. The Israelis responded, as they always do, with airstrikes uh, on a couple of Hamas sites in Gaza. Uh, There are no casualties on either side of this, at least none that I've seen reported. So that's, you know, again, kind of, uh, but but there's always the potential for this to, uh, these kinds of exchanges to flare up and become something much bigger. Uh, The other development of note on Thursday is that uh, the Israeli finance minister, uh, Bezalel Smotrich, uh, was given official uh, control over uh, management of the settlements in the West Bank on Thursday. Now, he's finance minister. Management of the settlements has always been uh, conducted out of the defense ministry because the entire West Bank uh, has, to date, been uh, administered under military rule uh, by the Israeli government. Uh, Smotrich demanded a special uh, post Special sub ministry post in the defense ministry, uh, to give him control of the settlements in his coalition, part of his coalition deal, uh, with Benjamin Netanyahu. So, uh, he now is the main, uh, authority over the West Bank settlements. This is, uh, a, you know, it's not just a little minor political wrangling, uh, deal that Netanyahu did in order to form his government. This is a, this could be a fundamental change, uh, in terms of the status of the settlements. Smotrich wants to administer the settlements under Israeli law, not under military law, uh, which amounts to, to annexation. It's not formal annexation. You're not formally making these, uh, these settlements a part of Israel, but de facto, uh, it does. It separates them from the rest of the West Bank and it, it makes them uh, the responsibility of the civilian Israeli government rather than the military. That's a that's a huge uh change in status and potentially one that, um, you know, again, to the extent that people are still talking about the two state solution uh, and about settlements, uh, as the UN did earlier this week, it's uh, it's a step away again from from, uh, And I believe ever. Biden
0: did in the national security strategy too. There's The U.S. government's position right. is still two states.
1: Yes. Yeah. It's still, it still maintains this thing, but it's impossible. And it's impossible. It's even Anyone more Anyone who studies it
0: on any uh, side if, says it's impossible. It, know, just if, it just shows they don't right. care. It just shows they don't care, to my, to they, my mind. They don't yeah, really care. Yeah, it's a
1: rhetorical... They, they think it's, it's over, basically,
0: and they're just right. going to side with Israel. I mean, my extremely pessimistic take on this whole issue is that the U.S. government decided within the last... 10 years my guess is after obama that this thing is done and they're not going to do anything and they're going to say they're for two states and that's basically
1: it um i mean i I would i would say it happened even before that like if there was ever perhaps president and an israeli prime minister who should have that should whose relationship was so bad it could have uh precipitated a, a some kind of breakdown in that relationship. It was Obama and Netanyahu, but Obama unceasingly just Eight shit, basically, from Netanyahu for, for eight years. And, they don't think uh, it's worth the domestic do political anything. cost. That's ultimately what it is. Yes.
0: Basically, both administrations don't think it's worth the domestic political cost, um, not just from the Israel lo- lobby, but also from the Christian Evangelical lobby, and we're going to have an episode on that as well with Dan Hummel coming soon. Uh, they just don't think it's worth the domestic political cost, and I think that's the situation here today, and I think that's what AP listeners should basically take with them when they view the, anyone the talking about The Evangelical Christian
1: this. lobby, which famously would support democrats supports democrats except right uh, for it, Israel. right well, like, of this, course these are people that they can't win anyway they can't they d- win these votes anyway yeah but, they just don't uh, care they still don't want to do and they, it they
0: don't anything. want to do the political capital right that's what it is they don't want to sh- they don't want to expend any political capital this is why if you look at the, the the trends it's always in the second half of the second term that a president tries to do something with the middle east particularly israel palestine and fails right. uh and because they don't really care because they're not really willing to expand political capital it's very grim
1: uh, yes, I, I agree with all of that.
0: Once again, perfect position, Daniel Bessner. Uh, exactly. Derek,
1: let's move on to Iran. Uh, yeah, this was a report in Bloomberg on Sunday that the International Atomic Energy Agency, uh, their inspectors, had detected trace evidence of uranium uh, in Iran that had been enriched to 84%. Now, uh, you know, there's all kinds of uh, technical details that go into uranium enrichment. All you have to know here is that. Uh, weapons grade uranium is typically regarded as anything enriched to 90% or higher. Uh, that is an arbitrary distinction, though. If you had enough of a stockpile of 84% enriched uranium, you could pretty easily produce a nuclear weapon. So this is, you know, kind of alarm time if, if Iran is enriching uranium, uh, to that level. Now, the IAEA hasn't officially commented uh, on this report. It, it did say it's discussing, uh, something that its inspectors found uh with the Iranians which kind of gives the the game away. Uh the Iranian government has reacted fairly quickly to this. They've invited they invited IAEA officials to visit Iran for discussions. Um the uh one of the media outlets in Iran, Noor News, which is linked with uh, the Iranian government, uh acknowledged basically uh, on Thursday that there was this discovery uh, of uranium enriched to 84%, but the Iranians are saying, and uh, they're saying that this is some kind of accident. It is possible that you could detect a trace uh, in a centrifuge or something that, that shows a higher level of enrichment than what what the Iranians were actually doing uh, or there could be some kind of error in the collection of the sample or something like that. There's a, a, a few ways that this could be kind of a benign thing. Uh, and that's what the Iranians are saying. And, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe, You know, maybe they're, they're lying of course, but the Iranians have never really been shy about saying, yes, we're enriching uranium to a higher level now. I mean, they've gone as high as 60% uh, and been, you know, very open and public about it because they feel like that puts pressure uh, on the US to try and revive the the nu- the 2015 nuclear deal. So, uh, you know, I think the their reaction is uh, is telling here that they they seem to be uh a- kind of eager to to get uh, to clear the air with the IAEA and and to uh, say that this is uh you know some sort of accidental uh thing that they were not intending to enrich uranium to that level or there was no intentional uh, effort to do so. So that's uh but that's a, a, a serious development. Uh, you know, when you start getting up into these numbers, obviously, uh, I do not believe the Iranians are pursuing a nuclear weapon, but the U.S. government as a matter of policy does. The Israeli government as a matter of policy does. And when you get reports like 84% enriched uranium, and we discovered this in Iran, uh, that gets to, to levels that could trigger some kind of military response. So, um, it is, uh, definitely something to watch and, and an area of concern, I would say.
0: Let's conclude on what's going on um, in terms of the drought in the Horn of Africa.
1: Yes, uh, there's a new report on Wednesday from the Intergovernmental Authority on Development, which is the Horn of Africa's kind of political economic block. Uh, they, they have a climate prediction and application center, uh, which is now predicting uh, a sixth uh, subpar uh, rainy season in a row. Uh, for that region. Uh, there's already been a, a drought that's impacted millions of people uh, in Ethiopia, Kenya, Somalia, Uganda, really all over uh, kind of the Horn of Africa and, and uh, big chunks of East Africa. Uh, in Somalia alone, uh, it's believed that tens of thousands of people have died because of this drought, uh, which of course has been exacerbated by the many political challenges that Somalia faces and by the war in Ukraine, uh, which has raised global food prices. Uh, and that, uh, over a million people have been displaced. So this is, uh, you know, very serious situation. Uh, I don't have any, uh, good news to offer here, but, um, you know, it is, they are predicting no end in sight basically at this point, uh, for what is a, a really critical environmental situation. The, the, the drought has been, you know, at least the last three years has been very heavy, uh, in these places. In, in Somalia, it's gone on, I think, a bit longer than that, maybe four to five years. Uh, but just a, just a you know devastating thing and you would hope at some point they're going to get a a, a normal or even excessive rainy season to kind of make up some of what's been lost uh, over the last several years but uh, it's not coming anytime soon apparently
0: Thank you, Derek, for uh, keeping us abreast of everything horrible that's going on in the world. And thank you, everyone, for listening to American Prestige. Um, And I'm just going to let everyone know we've got a really fun uh, bonus episode with the Oscar-nominated screenwriter Josh Olsen on The Manchurian Candidate coming this Sunday. And if you can, uh, try to watch both versions, the 62 version and the 2004 version. Um, We do some comparisons, and the the, the first one is a classic movie, and the second one is a movie. Uh, And we talk about both of them and uh, you guys will like that one so uh, everyone will see you soon bye bye